Welcome to the Let's Talk International Education podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Benny, founder of Top Schools. We're here for you, whether you're a parent, grandparent, a teacher, as long as you're interested in education, you're in the right place. We work hard to bring relevant, up-to-date and possibly controversial information on all things related to education. In this first season, we've invited education leaders from around the world, as well as parents just like you and I. We're pleased you found us. Don't forget to subscribe. And here's today's episode. Good afternoon and welcome to this live broadcast with myself, Ruth Benny from Top Schools, and I'm joined with by some very special guests. We welcome Charlie Ellenson, Director of Quality and Standards AISL Group. Hi, Charlie. Hi. Hi, everybody. Uh, delighted to be here, Ruth. And we welcome Jenny McGowan, University Advisor from Keystone Tutors. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And last but not least, Toby Parslow, instructor, Pembroke College of Cambridge University. Good morning, Toby. Uh, yeah, good morning here from a very sunny London. And morning to Jenny. Are you also in the UK? No, I'm actually in Hong Kong. You're in Hong Kong. Yeah. So myself, Jenny and Charlie in Hong Kong and Toby in the UK. So welcome to those of you. Where are you tuning in from? Let us know in the comments where you're watching us from. So we're talking today about evolving university admissions. Uh, critical thinking and communication skills. Now, I have two children about to enter university in the next one and two years, so I'm super interested both as a parent and as uh, an admissions consultant. So let's get straight into it. Um, so glad that we have the speakers with us today and you all bring something a little bit different. So perhaps we can come to you first, um, Charlie. The title is understanding the changing admissions process. What's changing? Well, it's very interesting, actually, Ruth. At Harrow, of course, yeah, we, we've been preparing originally boys and now boys and girls across the world for entry into top universities for, well, 450 years since Harrow London was founded. And uh, of course, we've been remarkably successful with that uh, top universities in the UK and increasingly now in North America and beyond. And I think putting its most simplistic term, in days gone by, we were readying students by giving them the greatest opportunity for knowledge accumulation, i.e. to understand a specific sphere of study, whether maths or science or languages or English as deep as possible in readiness to succeed in a formal assessment. So that would be A-levels. It could also now be, of course, be IB and other systems too, AP for American and others. Uh, but of course, what we have found for all sorts of different contributing reasons is that uh, those formal assessments are no longer uh, a true differentiator between uh, those students who are very good and those students who are exceptional and there's obviously a difference there, uh, and nor are they a predictor of uh, the success that students might go on to attain when they depart university and go into the working world, where we know, because research bears this out in conversations with key employer employment sectors across the globe, uh, reinforce that the, the multitude of skills are prized as highly, if not higher than academic credentials. And when we talk about those, what kind of soft skills and, and other less formal skills are we pointing at? Well, we're talking about particularly sort of seven key skills, creativity, initiative, leadership, planning, self-management, teamwork, and communication. And particularly 
we have recognised as a group of Haro schools, we have 12 schools across the UK and Asia, that we have to ready our students to really stand out from other exceptional students, not only in their ability to gain outstanding examination results, which they do, but also to really impress admissions teams and university selection committees and so on with their ability to communicate really effectively with confidence, with clarity, with coherent arguments, with explanations, and to think very critically. Because in a world where artificial intelligence can give us all the knowledge, ChatGPT can give me everything I need in an instant, we actually need humans who can think for themselves, think, as I say, critically, can weigh up arguments, debate, and discuss in great depth and with great confidence. And that's why we're partnering up with Cambridge University, with the Cambridge Union and representatives from the, from the union there at Cambridge University and Keystone Tutors, not only to provide a programme that supplements everything that we do day in, day out with our own students, but to provide wider audience with an opportunity to allow their sons and daughters to gain the benefit from the tuition and the advice mm. and the rich guidance that comes from experts in the field. So that's a quick sort of global overview on how admissions to the most selective universities have changed, continue to change and will change, particularly in the UK, where admissions process has been quite unidimensional up to this point, in contrast perhaps to North America. Yeah, and I think I think Hong Kong is still playing catch up in that respect. And I think certainly what's what's being taught in Hong Kong schools might not match up. So I think it's interesting the qualities that you you listed out there read exactly almost like qualities you would read in a job description, which is interesting to note. So so we're moving away from grades, and this is a positive move. They will continue to um, evolve the power of exceptional communication skills. I don't think any of us would would argue with that. I don't know, parents, if you're watching. I mean. Are Ask any questions to our experts. We are live, um, very much so. So if you do have questions as we go along, we'd be happy to answer those. Perhaps, I'm not sure, Toby or, or Jenny, I mean, could you, thank you, Charlie, for a really um, excellent introduction, but can we break that down a little bit more? I mean, we all hear these terms, you know, um, critical thinking skills, excellent communication skills. Can we go into a little bit more detail about what is it that the university admissions um, are looking for in terms of those two um, areas? Should we come to you, Toby? Uh, maybe Jen is probably best place for the uh, admission side of things, yeah. Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, so I think, as Charlie's already described, you know, grades are no longer enough. And so universities have put methods in place, actually, to challenge, you know, students thinking beyond simply what they are achieving at school. And there are different ways that they do that. And I suppose my big caveat here is that it obviously depends on what you're applying to, where you're applying. There, are, there is a lot of difference in between what universities are actually doing in the kind of granular detail. But I guess if I give an overview of, of how these skills are, are kind of looked at within the process is that there's often a, a written element. So in some form of, let's say, personal statement in the UK or in the US, that might be college essays. And actually in 
in written form, there's a lot that students can analyse. They talk about what they know, how they reflect, evaluate, etc. So I think the written part shouldn't necessarily be forgotten about. And obviously developing critical thinking and communication skills, you know, verbally is, is one thing. But actually the first stage for most universities is to look at what's been written down. I think then moving on beyond that, there's often admissions tests in some form, especially if we're talking about Oxbridge, for example, many of those courses do have admissions tests. And again, to echo what kind of Charlie said is that they're not simply recalling facts anymore. Those admissions tests are are designed to be challenging. They're often quite abstract. So they're giving students maybe a, a piece of text or a mathematical problem to solve that they haven't seen before. You know, that's that's the aim is to challenge and try and find the students that can think on their feet and actually do well under pressure when they haven't been taught or wrote, learnt it or whatever school may have taught them. So the admissions test is, is another written form, but it's slightly different in that you're having to respond on the spot to a a given scenario and then I think the final part which again I know we're going to talk a little bit more about later is the interview element which again Oxbridge in particular you know interview nobody gets an offer without an interview and the skills that come out through that interview process really do um, set students aside it's the differentiating factor between students who are just very very bright and know their stuff versus those that actually can again articulate themselves be challenged and be kind of able to cope within a very challenging top university um, environment so those are the kind of main ways that universities are assessing students I suppose in these kind of higher level skills because they get all the grades as Charlie already said that's all on your form that's all kind of admin if you like but there's these added elements that the students can really show off these skills that that they have and it it does differentiate between students. Adding on to that once you get to university in of itself in Cambridge we have a supervision based form of teaching which primarily discussion based obviously you have your lectures on the one hand and you do essays of course one a week but then you also have to be able to speak about those essays in a weekly seminar or discussion where you sit in a small room with two or three other colleagues or other students and have this one-on-one conversation about your work. And so the ability to be able to, not just for the admissions process, but then once you're at university in a place like Oxford and Cambridge, you need to be able to articulate yourself as well and defend your point in that context. So yes, doing the written work on the one hand, but then also being able to talk about it. And it's interesting as well, just from the context of, say, Cambridge history and assessment. In Cambridge, we call uh, the end of your degree examinations the tripos exams. And the word tripos has its origins from a three-legged stool, which uh, the student would have to sit on and defend, defend their thesis, defend uh, their point of view um, in Latin. And that was their examination. And I think it's interesting to see that we now see the return of this uh, more form of um, oral assessment nowadays when we've had this move towards written in the last, say, 100 years. So, yeah, it's, it's actually going back to sort of something that was always there and has always been important. And I think people are beginning to realise it once again. Thank you, Toby. I think that a lot of the parents watching today might have children who are aspiring to top universities around the world. But um, let us know how old are your children. Um, But I wanted to ask, you know, when is the right time for for children to really start um, to focus on developing these skills? Is it possible to start too young? Shall I, shall I jump in as a father of a nine-year-old? I can tell you from about the age of two. Uh, no, you know, marking aside, um, I do think it's really important to generate an atmosphere in which 
you know, healthy discussion and debate is at the very centre of everyday life. And that actually we're not relying solely on tag-on programmes for a 17 and 18-year-old at the last gasp to ready them, hopefully, to impress at uh, an Oxbridge interview. What we're actually doing is providing a, a whole-life immersion of opportunities, as we you know, do when we devise in our Harrow schools, for students to have ample opportunities inside the classroom and outside of the classroom to discuss and to debate and to share opinion and to be challenged and to be put in situations where they may be feeling rather uncomfortable because actually that's what brings the very best out in students and in adults too. So I don't think it's ever too early to start. It just needs to be appropriate in its nature. We're not expecting a sort of hustings for three and four-year-olds at home over dinner. But yeah, we are expecting perhaps parents, if you're reading stories to your uh, young uh, sons and daughters, it's really important to ask them to what their opinions are, what they think about uh, the story, what they think about the characters, and get them to actually espouse their feelings, what they presuppose might be happening on the next page. What do you think Mr. Wolf might be doing? And why does he feel like this? And under, so that they actually become very conversant in a whole array of vocabulary, but being able to express themselves coherently with very simple language up to more sophisticated language. Because like anything else, if it becomes a tag-on at the very last moment, then A, it's not very authentic, and B, students are very unlikely under great pressure to have the depth of skill and capability to deliver when it matters most. It's slightly off topic, but if we can just go there for a moment, I think that there's a common perception among parents that uh, an IB curriculum is, is more effective in developing these types of skills. And I mean, Harrow schools are, are running a UK curriculum. Um, do you want to address that for a moment, Charlie? Because everything you've described is, is actually contained within the English national curriculum. Right. Yeah. I mean, we'd need a whole extra live stream for sort of IB uh, comparison to A-levels or, or, or other sort of uh, national and, and other curriculums. I've been a head of an IB school at one stage as well as has been head of an A-level school, so had very sort of direct comparisons to those. That ultimately, um, it really isn't about the curriculum that's that's been delivered per se and the, and the content of the curriculum. It's how the curriculum is delivered, and it's the atmosphere of learning and teaching that really underpins and nurtures these skills. So it's what we would call pedagogical practice. It's how teachers and then increasingly peers, so pupils to one another, um, at the climate in which they exist in everyday life. So, for example, if you take any of our schools, Harrow Hong Kong, Harrow Bangkok, Harrow London, you will see that learning goes way beyond simple content of an examination-based curriculum into what we call the super curriculum. So learning um, for the actual just joy of, of, of the passion of learning, whether that's history or music or um, you know, mathematics, that, so that students not only develop that passion, which helps them uh, to select those courses that they, they want to uh, aspire to at the top universities that they, they know they're really passionate and interested in, but it allows them then to develop that uh, depth of vocabulary, understanding and background in to have those conversations. It's about having debating societies. It's about having rich discussions in class and posing uh, uh, um, uh, opposing sort of uh, opinions to, to those that students might have. So uh, actually, 
uh, I would look much more deeply into the climate of the school in which the children learn, uh, the classrooms and the opportunities outside the classrooms for developing uh, a rounded ability to communicate effectively and to think critically, rather than su suggest, oh, well, just because uh, IB has theory of knowledge uh, within the curriculum, that that must be developing critical thinkers. Thank you. I, I Yes, um, you're preaching to the choir. But thank you for the questions that are coming in. I'm going to try to integrate these questions. Um, I think this one's for you, Jenny. So Vijaya is asking, you know, I guess I'll paraphrase, how much do these critical thinking skills and communication skills, can they compensate in some way for not such great scores in the IB in this case? I mean, my area of expertise is the UK, just to be very transparent. So I suppose I'm not sure where you know, you're targeting. Um, but from a UK perspective, I mean, sadly, in some ways, you know, universities are fairly um, black and white in terms of often what their minimum academic requirements are. So on any course, on any university site, you can see what the kind of minimum offer is. And therefore, that does limit you to some extent. And, and you can't really compensate with, with softer skills within the UK admissions process um, if you haven't met the minimum. I think the skills that we're talking about, you know, are for students that have maybe met the minimums and they're then differentiating themselves within that group. Um, but I think, you know, to, to answer the question, that there are lots of options. Again, within the UK, which is what I'm talking about here, for students that do have scores of, say, 30 to 32. I mean, I've guided lots of students with, with those kind of scores. Um, and it's about expectations, obviously, of, of what your aspirations for, for university yes. are. But, but there will be options um, in the UK at that score point. But yeah, sadly, there, there are minimum requirements that most universities won't budge on um, unless there are specific factors. I suppose the other thing just to mention quickly was that, you know, there are contextual um, reasons why potentially universities may consider lower offers. Um, but obviously, it depends on circumstance as to whether they they apply or not. Um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I think it does. Thank you, Vijay, for your question. I've got a couple more. I'm going to um, put them up at the appropriate moment. Toby, let's move to you. Um, we're going to talk about some of the nuts and bolts now. I mean, do hopefully get plenty of practice um, in school, but you know, they might be anxious or uh, afraid of public speaking. They might just choose not to participate in those sort of supercurricular activities. Um, so, so how can a, a program um, like this or, you know, sort of with instruction, how do you help these, these children? Yeah, no, very good question. I, th I think... I mean, the the that the uh, the traditional statistic that people quote is that public speaking is one of the biggest fears that anyone experiences, and I always think this is such a terrible shame because public speaking is something that we we have to do every day. It's involved in our professional lives. It's involved in our personal lives as well. Um, and I know we're obviously talking a lot about it in the context of university admissions, but these really are fundamental skills that you can learn, which you can apply to professional life, personal life, and your entire life. Really, it's not just about ticking a box to, you know, pass the exam, to uh, get the interview. It's about becoming a more confident human being and a more effective communicator in that way as well. Um, and so with sort of trying to deal with that fear, basically with these kind of uh, programs, what you're trying to do is basically try and say the things that you want to say in the ways that you want to say them and to be able to gain the tools to effectively communicate what that is. And at the end of the day, it's not about being perfect. It's not about, you know, giving the best speech that ever was. 
but it's about being able to honestly communicate and have the audience understand what it is that you're trying to say. Um, but in terms of dealing with those nerves, you know, there's the important thing is to have a really supportive environment, a really environment that is low stakes, um, an environment where you have the ability to make mistakes and you have the ability to um, experiment as well. And the trouble is, when you are asked to speak publicly, usually it's in a very formal setting. It's to give a presentation. It is to present a lecture. It is to go to an academic conference and speak to a room full of hundreds of people. Whereas with the program that we've designed, it's very much um, it's very much a supportive environment where people will be practicing with each other. They'll have one-on-one tuition with us as um, as instructors and be encouraged to experiment in that as well. So you're able to make mistakes uh, and you're able to practice and hopefully overcome um, those issues of confidence. Thank you, Toby. I think, Natalie, um, we, we're sort of veering now into the direction of, of uh, mentioning the, the summer programme. So, Natalie, yes, there is a programme um, to um, a summer camp experience. Um, so, would, would we just briefly touch on, on what that is and, and sort of the components um, of the summer camp? Um, who would like to take this Maybe it's best for me. I, I can speak through a little bit about the uh, the overview of what we've got planned. Um, so it's myself and three other uh, instructors from uh, Pembroke College at the University of Cambridge. Um, I myself um, was former president and founder of the College Speaking Society. We also have two other presidents of that society and also a former president uh, of the Cambridge Union, which is the university-wide, very, very world-famous um, debating society as well. So a lot of expertise there. Um, but also uh, a lot of understanding of what it's like to begin uh, your public speaking career or learning those skills. Um, So for us, we have uh, 10 separate sessions covering a range of different topics, starting from general presentation skills, how to uh, effectively communicate to an audience, how to come across to an audience, how to adapt to what the audience wants, uh, and then going into some more of the technical details. So uh, the history of rhetoric, Um, So looking at things like logic, looking at things like ethos and pathos, uh, which if you don't know about them, the students will learn all about what what that is. Uh, And then also some of the technical devices that we have. So a lot of these uh, a lot of these techniques have, you know, ancient Greco Latin words like kairos or tricolon. Um, We'll be teaching all about that. But the most important thing is not about necessarily learning what these things are, but being able to deploy those skills effectively in this supportive environment, as well as using things like how do you present data? How do you present evidence in a speech? How do you use humour in order to effectively persuade and also communicate as well? And through each of these sessions, hopefully they'll be building on top of each other, one-on-one, and then finally culminating in this uh, end-of-week showcase on the Friday afternoon, which I'm hoping will be live streamed or will be able to record in some fashion where the students will have the opportunity to put all of those skills together um, and present to a slightly larger audience, slightly more intimidating, but hopefully we would have built them up to be able to um, achieve that by the end of the week. I think this question, we can address it um, to both Jenny and Toby in in a different way. Maybe Toby, continuing on the, the activities that will be going on during the camp, what, how will you be addressing um, if the children are not native English speakers? Yeah, it is. it's a very good question. Well, I, I mean, the programme is, is obviously going to be in, in English and about effectively trying to communicate in the English language. Um, but the point is we are going to be adapting to any sort of level. Um, and it's, it's incredibly difficult to overcome these challenges of when it isn't your native language. But at the same time, I think 
there is this really interesting thing that happens when you don't have you don't think necessarily or form sentences in the way that a native speaker would but sometimes that can help foster your creativity and actually you come with something incredibly unique or you articulate something in a in a very specific way that actually can be an asset rather than a hindrance to 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 your speech or to yeah to, to present yourself but yeah we will obviously be offering a very supportive environment um it's going to be uh yeah it's, it's going to be informal we're very approachable we're very nice um and the idea is just to try and you know help you gain that confidence um throughout that week regardless of your uh, english ability yeah i think there was a word that, that charlie used in the beginning which is authentic um it's really really important to can i address the question to you jenny also in a slightly different way because natalie's um asked about you know the child that's coming from a different educational system let's say they're looking at um entering one of the top universities in the uk how how do the uk universities um evaluate different systems yeah so there's there's different points here i suppose so one is about again, a slightly boring, do you have the right qualifications or not? Um, and, you know, the, the UK education system does, ex so the university system does accept a wide range, actually, of, of different education systems from all around the world. And there are often equivalents. So if you remain, let's say you remain in a, a French system, um, your child until they're 18, there are then conversions where each university will say whether they accept that kind of qualification or not. Um, if they don't, it might be that then additional qualifications in some way have to be taken. So, so there's the kind of nitty gritty of the actual admissions process to think about in terms of system. But I think if you're in a system where the qualifications are accepted or you're in a now in an English speaking school system, you know, again, in terms of the admissions requirements, it is just going to be about how you're doing in your current setting, um, rather than necessarily are you a native English speaker or, or not. You know, if you're, let's say you're doing the IB, you know, those requirements will be similar for whether you're in the, uh, you know, in the English speaking system or not. Most universities, for example, will accept English B, let's say, if, if you're studying that at IB as a non-native speaker, that's not a problem because the rest of your studies are in English. So th there are nuances, I suppose, of, of the actual admissions requirements. But I think other than that, if we're talking about the kind of preparation, I think all that we've said so far and what Charlie was saying about discussion and, and all of that kind of still definitely applies. And I guess the obvious thing would be trying to uh, immerse in as much English material as possible. So if you are discussing, let's say, literature or the news or whatever, you know, doing as much of that with English resources will obviously help when it comes to writing your personal statement and potentially having having an interview. Um, so, so yeah, I guess there are there are differences here about whether it's about the actual admissions criteria or not, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, it's never straightforward. Um, I, I guess I would like to ask. Um, a little bit about the Hong Kong um, Diploma of Secondary Education, which is what the vast majority of students in Hong Kong graduate. Um, do you have experience of, of supporting students to enter UK University with DSE in any particular um, observations, I suppose? Yeah, so so I do. Um, and again, the DSE is, is one of the very kind of widely accepted qualifications so for, for most Hong Kong students studying the DSE they won't have issues kind of applying to UK universities with that qualification. Um, I guess that the challenge sometimes is 
the, the level of English um, that students do have coming from the DSE system. So if you are looking at, let's say, the kind of Oxbridge or maybe where there are admissions tests, I think the challenge with those is that firstly, the, the level of English expected is very high. And I think secondly, the types of skills going back to our critical thinking and um, kind of speaking and being able to articulate yourself. I think there are lots of positives about the Hong Kong system and the, the DSE. But I think one of the, the drawbacks is that it, it is a bit rote learning. <laughs> There's not a huge amount of, of space for debate and challenge. Um, and it's more a factual based exam system. So I think that can be the challenge sometimes is just the, the the difference between those two systems for the top universities where there's interviews and things involved can be quite challenging. But equally, you know, Hong Kong is, well, Hong Kong and then China are the two biggest feeders of students to UK universities in the world. So there are many, many thousands of students that are successful with that every year. Yeah, thank you, Jenny. Um, we are reaching the end. So um, if you are watching this live, this is your opportunity to ask questions to our experts. Um, if you're watching this on replay, um, please go ahead, type your comments. We'll try to answer the questions as well. So let me come um, to you, Toby. In the summer programme, there's a section on university taster sessions. I'm just wondering how you're going to structure that and, and what does that exactly entail? So the university taster sessions, I believe, is uh, run yeah. by. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on the public. I'll, I'll jump in. <laughs> so, yeah. So what we're doing, yeah. So our kind of side of the program is is more about the university admissions part because whilst obviously all of these skills are are life skills that should be being developed anyway, that there is obviously a practical implication of of trying to improve um, students' chances at these top universities. So I think in terms of what we're doing in these sessions is that we're trying to explore academic subjects beyond what students might be studying at school and to try and give students a taster for what that might look like. Again, going away maybe from the rote learning a little bit and trying to think more broadly about topics that you may not even study, but equally the, the style is very much going to be about discussion, being challenged, having um, you know discussions about these subjects that you probably wouldn't get the opportunity to do at school. So that's the kind of part that we're um, you know, providing. And, and actually, I've just kind of seen a question actually about super curricular learning, which I was actually just going to mention. So that's a great timing for that question. Um, so super curricular learning is kind of academic learning, but is not about kind of what you're studying at school is, is a very simple way to try and define that. So let's say if you are studying, um, you know, biology at school, a super curricular learning would maybe be doing something like some work experience in a biology lab. It might be doing the biology Olympiad, which is going to challenge your, your knowledge in a different way. It might be reading, um, you know, research from what Cambridge or Oxford are publishing. It's about challenging your kind of academic knowledge beyond what you're studying at school. Um, and this is becoming increasingly important because it, as Charlie said at the very beginning, so many students now have the grades, they have the top A-level IB scores. And so to show universities that you really are interested, this kind of super curricular learning is evidence to them that you're really sure you want to study biology or economics or or whatever um, that might be. And so I suppose within the summer 
program you know what we're doing our tutors are doing and they do this with students all the time is is to try and start that process and give suggestions of, of things that students can be doing of whatever age you can do super curricular activities whatever age you are they just are obviously age appropriate you know to to the student and so we're trying to start that process um within our sessions and we will give students lots of examples so that they can go away and hopefully um you know start to build on on that um however old they are yeah thank you jenny i have a technical question on um on that because i notice a lot of the independent schools in the uk as well are, are doing their own um super curricular program or perhaps charlie you, you're more well placed to answer this um so the EPQ, which is the Extended Project Qualification, comes with UCAS points, whereas the supercurricular programs don't, if, if I'm correct. I'm not sure. So how does that, does that mean that the very, very top universities are not really just, look, they're not looking at UCAS points? Um, I'm not sure. I'm a bit confused. Yeah, no, relevant question. UCAS points can come in lots of forms. So not just uh, EPQ, the Extended Project Qualification, which for our listeners, uh, in simple terms, is a, a researched study not, not often an essay a 4000 word essay it doesn't have to be delivered in an essay format but it often often is but it, it allows a student to uh, look very deeply into a very specific area of a discipline that they enjoy studying uh, and it's not uh, dissimilar to the extended essay in the IB um, so yes that, you're right that 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 would qualify for UCAS points or university you know qualification points but then again so does the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme so does lambda for uh, performing arts um, and indeed a grade eight music in, in, and so on so that so there are universities that will award entry points for their courses based on a whole range of skills and talents that you have acquired uh, however, you are also uh, absolutely right to suggest that the most selective universities uh, will not be working on a UCAS points-based tariff table. Uh, they'll be working on uh, expected uh, grades and on an offer, uh, whether that's IB points or grades in A-level, uh, etc. However, uh, what, we're, what we're saying is, um, if everybody else has those grades uh, and everybody else's school are predicting those excellent grades, what is it about you that stands out? And, and it may well be that you've got your Duke of Edinburgh gold, which we would term to be super curricular, which shows that you are resilient, which shows you can work in a team, which shows you have commitment, uh, which shows that, you know, you are prepared to give uh, willingly of your time in service to other people in the community etc so it says a lot about you as a person and and harrow schools and independent schools again being very broad brush and stereotypical but in the british uh, independent sector and, and public schools if you like are, are founded on this idea of of holistic education of developing boys and girls into really rounded uh, interesting deep individuals who are much more than the sum of their academic qualifications right because those are the people you know harrow have, have, have had um, seven British prime ministers, five kings, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we go up. We don't need to show off about all that kind of thing. But what we're saying is it's the environment in which these people are nurtured that allows them, them to go on and be successful, whether they're at the Cambridge Union debating uh, or, or whether they're in their employment situation leading a team on a project. You know, ultimately, what's the end goal here? Well, getting into a really good university isn't the end game, is it? It's just another stepping stone to, to, to what goes beyond. And then you get a good job. Well, that's not the end game. The, the, the end game is enjoying what you do and being successful in that. And success comes in, in lots of ways. So it's very much about developing all aspects of the individual, the personal development of each child. Parents mm -hmm. and school together 
have to work um, in triangulation to make that happen. Thank you. And that that brings us almost full circle. What we, you started off to say that it's just it's such an important message to parents that, you know, your child's grades are, are one aspect um, of their education and, um, you know, relatively important. Um, but that's not that's not where it ends. Um, so. Um, there's a couple, There's a question about the summer program. We've been hinting that there is a summer program. There's a QR code in in the um, corner of the screen. Um, it's my bottom right. But if you scan that, we we have a summer program. AISL together with Cambridge and Keystone um, are putting on a summer program, and all the details are there. Um, it's suitable for children from about 13 years old, year nine. Um, is that Toby? And would you like to say anything more about sort of the type, the sort of students that you think would benefit from this the most? I mean, it, yeah, it, 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 as you mentioned, um, from year yeah year nine onwards, around about 13 years of age. Um, but, you know, you could be 13 year old or so they'll be interacting and speaking with people who who are 18 um, and a little bit older. But yeah, honestly, everyone, ev- anyone and everyone, public speaking skills are ones that are applicable to no matter what subject it is you're looking to do, no matter what it is that you want to do as a job afterwards and no matter what university you want to go to. So uh, anyone that wants to improve and become more confident as uh, an orator. Okay, thank you very much. I mean, just as an aside, I've been doing Toastmasters for about 25 years now, and I came to that as an adult, and boy, do I wish I'd done it earlier. Um, So we didn't, you know, we went to school in the, well, I won't say which decade it was, but um, there's much more of a focus now on these sorts of skills. Um, So we are reaching the end. Um, If you have any more questions, um, this is your last chance. Um, Can I come to each of uh, of you and, um, you know, just sort of parting words, you know, what's, you know, we we have summer schedule coming up, uh, summer holiday. We often hear about, what do they call it, the brain, where the the, the kids' brains go mushy, brain Brain drain. Is that the same thing um, with the kids on holiday? So it's really important to keep them active and, and engaged um, during the summer. So um, maybe what tips do you have for parents in that regard? My advice would be that um, um, exposure to the greatest variety of opportunities is probably the, the greatest prize that you could give to the child. So, you know, no matter the age, I, I think Children are multi-talented and they amaze me. I've been fortunate to work with children, you know, all my adult life and um, and they never cease to amaze me. Um, but of course, as they grow, they don't always know where those talents may lie. And, and public speaking and debating and, and other uh, opportunities like that um, are actually few and far between for many. Uh, and that's what's the greatest shame uh, is that the best schools uh, are often those ones that, that are allowing that variety of exposure to opportunities. So, not not simply just to engage with academic tutoring, which is you know unidimensional in itself, but to um, to think more widely about uh, challenging your child in a fun, rewarding way that will develop uh, skills, talents, and passions way beyond academia. Thank you, Charlie. Jenny, Toby, anything to add? No, I think that's perfectly summarised. You're good. I need to show. Um, I need to show you some of your your credentials. Um, So we have a a couple of slides here. Um, So that's you, Toby. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought I'd just end with a few of my key top tips um, of, from my experience of uh, delivering public speaking workshops and working with and helping students get the best out of their ability to speak publicly. Uh, The first thing being that, as Charlie mentioned already, but public speaking skills really are timeless. You know, there's a lot of uh, 
a lot of debate in, in the impact on artificial intelligence, but you know, this is not something that can be replaced by AI. It can't be outsourced. So you can't, you can't hide behind not being able to do it. If you're high up in an organization, you're always going to need to present in front of people and will set you up for whatever context you, you go into. So it's definitely something that is worth investing in. I think the second key thing to remember is it's not about being perfect. You know, you will always, you're always going to make mistakes. Uh, you may not land a phrase properly. You may miss a word. You might cough or sneeze. There might be technical issues and people are distracted um, in, in the presentation. Uh, but it's not that it, people end up not really remembering that. They remember the message that they leave you with so or that you leave them with. So it's not about being perfect. It's about trying to effectively deliver a message. And the key way to do that is, is my third point, really. And again, Charlie sort of pivoted me to the post there, but authenticity really being the key in order to deliver that message effectively. You know, people have to believe what it is that you're saying and you can learn all of the techniques. Um, you can learn all the Latin Greco names for what those techniques are, but they all mean very little if uh, you don't have that authenticity and build that relationship with your audience because, you know, the audience might not necessarily remember what you said, but they're definitely going to remember how you made them feel. Yeah, thank you, Toby. And um, we did have a slide for Jenny, but it's gone astray. So, Jenny, you have some top tips to share? Yeah, so mine, I guess, in the, I suppose, a university advisor, so the, these are more, I suppose, practical things. Um, and I think we've touched on them all already, really, across the various um, different questions already. But I think exploring subjects you're interested in early, I think, again, to the super curricular point, which actually links with my second point here, is, you know, if you have an interest in economics, at whatever age is appropriate to be understanding that information, start exploring it. Don't wait to start your A-levels or, or IB subjects. You can explore academic subjects in a way that is going to challenge your thinking and your problem solving um, from an early age. And I think the best students that I see that have the highest chance of, of kind of, let's say, Oxbridge success are the ones that have a genuine passion, almost obsession for that academic subject and that's come through years of, of exploring that engaging with supercurricular learning um, to make sure that they're being stretched and challenged beyond the curriculum which obviously links perfectly with the, the critical thinking and analysis skills we've all been talking about and then my final point which is a little bit boring I guess to end on is just monitoring admissions requirements if you're coming towards the time of needing to apply for university Oxford and Cambridge are notorious for actually changing tests and things fairly late um, last year they did that quite a few times so it's just worth keeping an eye on what's going on so that you're calm and that you're ready for whatever you will, will face at the time. Thank you. Can I just be cheeky and sneak in one last um, point that's just been making some of the um, the blogs that I'm I've been reading? Is it more challenging to enter Oxbridge um, at the moment if you're coming from an independent or an international school, uh, fee-paying school? Um, I mean, there's to take it to statistics, which I, I suppose is the way to look at it, I mean, there's no denying that that is what the numbers are saying. I mean, both Oxford and Cambridge have increased the proportion of, of children coming from the state sector in the UK, which therefore does decrease the number coming from the independent sector. So I think the numbers do play out on that. The international numbers are it's slightly greyer because technically they're, they're not counted within those kind of state versus independent numbers in the UK. So that is a little bit more grey. Um, but but I also think, I mean, I have, have conducted interviews at Oxford um, myself. I've also 
spoken to lots of admissions tutors all the time. I keep in touch with lots of people. And the reality is, is that the message that they're giving is that the exceptional candidates are, are still getting in. Um, it's just that, you know, they are taking more, more context into kind of who they're looking at and taking into account their backgrounds. But it, it's not to say that the exceptional candidates at the independent schools are not getting in. They absolutely still still are doing that. But there is no doubt that, yeah, the numbers are are changing. Yeah. Thank you, Jenny. Um, so thank you, Caris, for putting up the link. It's been a really interesting um, discussion. Thank you so much um, for joining us, Charlie, Toby and Jenny. Um, so the QR code in the corner and then there's the link. Um, any final questions? Um, if not, I mean, I think that a camp like this as a residential camp at Harrow School in Hong Kong is going to be super fun and, and just so, so um beneficial for, for any of those students to develop those skills if, if they're looking at applying university in the next next few years so um, please save two seats for my uh, my little monkeys <laughs> and um, well, we, do, we do also have a camp at Harrow Bangkok so those parents are thinking oh that's a good idea I could Ooh, drop warmer. my little one off at the camp in Bangkok and go up to Phuket for five nights mm, thanks for that Charlie so um, with that we'll sign off um, thank you so much and um, thank you for those who watched live if you would like to ask your questions if you're watching on replay we will definitely ask our experts to answer your questions as well thanks everyone we'll sign off now bye-bye thank you for listening if you'd like to learn more about the Hong Kong education system and parenting and education news and trends check out our back catalogue all available to download for free. You can also head over to our YouTube, Facebook or website for lots of free useful information for parents and educators. Links in the show notes. Until next time.